One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since... It dropped last Wednesday. Uh, my dad has texted me literally every single day to see if I'd watched it yet because <laughs> Bill Russell was one of his true heroes. And, you know, we're talking about a 76-year-old guy from Tulsa, Oklahoma, who really doesn't care much about professional sports. But if I could count the number of times he's talked to me about the rivalry with Bill and uh, Wilt and you know, the way he revolutionized defense and, and everything you brought to the story. And then once I finally watched it, we were able to have this conversation that uh, gave us new things to talk about. So so thank you. Thank you for my, making my this pleasure. film. My pleasure. Um, yeah, well, let's let's jump in. So with us today is the incredible award winning director, editor, professor and professional storyteller. Uh, behind many films, but most recently, Bill Russell Legend on Netflix. Uh, hello, Sam Pollard. How are you today? I'm good. How are you today? Very good. Um, so I was thinking as a, a way into this, and you know, for storytellers and the stories they tell, context is everything, right? You can't just look at Bill Russell and talk only about what he did on the court, which was unparalleled. Uh, similarly, I don't think we can look at this film as just a sports doc about one of the goats. We have to take in the context of what's around it. And Bill Russell was an athlete and an activist during such incredible times. And you, you know, you are a storyteller whose unique lens has been brought to so many important figures. And I think it's that lens that, that elevates the story and, and the film. So, you know, can, how did you come to bring your lens, your perspective to, to a figure like Bill Russell? Well, first of all, I want to say that it was Ross Greenberg who reached out to me about two years ago and asked if I was interested in directing this documentary, which was initially going to be like a four or five part series about Bill. And uh, I was no hesitation on my part. I had grown up in the 60s. Like your dad, I had seen Bill Russell play against Wilt. I knew about him. I knew about his reputation as one of the great defensive centers of all time. In my neighborhood, we would have this dialogue. Who was the best center? Was it Will Chamberlain? Was it, or was it Bill Russell? And I always went for Bill Russell because just offensively, you could see what he could do on the court. And he was leading the Celtics to become a dynasty. I mean, this guy had 11 rings in 13 seasons, which is unthinkable nowadays in, the, in, the, in sports. So it was like, you know, this was something I wanted to dig into. And the thing I hadn't really known so much about was how active Bill was off the court. I knew about his exploits on the court, and I know a little bit about him. You know, I always knew about the picture of him at the 67 Summit with Jim Brown and Kareem and Ali and all the other, you know, sports figures. But I didn't really know about, you know, him going down to Jackson, Mississippi after Mega Everest's death. I didn't know his involvement in the bust and bossing issues in, in Massachusetts. I didn't know about 
the fact that he was at the March on Washington that I didn't know, you know, so it was all these fascinating things about Bill that came to light as we start to do the research and dig into the material. And there were so many books about Bill, plus his two memoirs, Going for Glory and Second, Second Wind. These were ways to look at Bill from a very interior perspective, because you could see from the excerpts we used, this guy was always constantly thinking about himself, not only as a basketball player, but as an African-American male in America at this pretty turbulent time in American history. I mean, you see him talking about his feelings about Dr. King, his feelings about Malcolm X, his feelings about Vietnam. You know, he was just more than a guy who would just shut up and dribble. He was a he was a real thinker. And I think the thing that, you know, was important to me as a filmmaker, as a storyteller, is your word about me, um, was to really look at Bill from all dimensions, not just look at him as just a sports figure, but as a, a figure who said, you know, I have a responsibility, you know, to speak out and speak up about things that I see wrong in America. And then that's what makes him special. And the other thing about him, too, is that he was also kind of an ornery guy, had a chip on his shoulder. You know, he was a complicated guy, like many of us are. And most times when you see sports figures, you only see the one side. We felt it was important that you see all the shades of Bill Russell. Right. And I feel today, you know, maybe we take for granted the ability to speak up, to say something, to stand up for what is right. And I think what was most impactful to me in watching the film is he did that at a time when it was dangerous to do so, not just, you know, professionally for his career, but for his life. Absolutely. Personally. I mean, getting the context of what happened to him and his house and in Reading and, and all of those stories. I mean, I think to be a little ornery is putting it mild, right? If that were to happen to to me or to anyone for whatever context, you know, it would leave a chip on your shoulder, right? Oh yeah, absolutely. And the fact that he has the humility and, and grace to, to keep on and to keep talking about it. And, you know, to be at the same time, this, almost gregarious figure. I know he wasn't always, but you hear that laugh. And I'm so happy that you in- included that in the film. I mean, it was, he, he did seem like a fun guy who brought a lot of love to the room, right? He had a lot of light. Well, you can tell in that home movie footage that we see the Celtics, you know, having a good time and partying, that he loved being a Celtic. If there's anything that you can have no question about, he loved being a Celtic. Absolutely. He loved being with his teammates. He loved winning games, you know. He did, but as he said, he didn't love Boston. He didn't love Boston fans, but he loved being right. a Celtic. And I think that's for him, that was the thing that kept him engaged and excited about the game. And I think, you know, like anything, wear and tear probably just got to him in the last couple of years, which you can tell by 67, 68, Bill had gotten psychically weary, physically weary. You know, he knew that his time was up. I mean, so... It, you know, it had to be a surprise for his teammates and the city of Boston when he walked away from the game after the 69 finals against the Los Angeles Lakers. But I think he knew that it was time for him to explore some different avenues. So yeah. I found that really kind of an amazing thing that he walked away from the Celtic organization. He walked away from the city of Boston and he walked away from his family, Trace. That was pretty, pretty impactful. Yeah, that that's an, that's an excellent point that... You know what was this other side to him that he he was he was looking for? You know he'd accomplished you know, obviously all these searching. Things. Yeah, he was obviously yeah. searching. I mean, right. you get up and you you, you go all the you drive all the way west 
looking for a new life. You know, yeah. that's what he did. You know, he, he had to have carried a great weight. Well, you've certainly covered many historical, culturally, socially important figures in your work. For those who aren't familiar, you know, MLK, FBI, Arthur Ashe, Eyes on the Prize. You know, can you tell our audience a little bit about how you uh, first came to be a storyteller and w- what drew you to it? Well, you know, it was really happenstance, man. I was a young 21-year-old going to City College in New York City, majoring in business. And uh, clearly, I wasn't happy in these classes I was taking at the time. So I went to see a counselor. And I told her I was looking for an internship, something to do after school. And she asked me what were my interests. And I said, I love books. And I loved old Hollywood movies. I loved old Hollywood movies. I mean, I just grew up watching, you know, Kirk Douglas and Robert Mitchum and Ava Gardner. You know, I just loved these movies. So she told me about a workshop that had been started by the public television station in New York City, WNET, in 1968 after Dr. King's assassination. They started this workshop to get more people of color behind the camera, in the editing room, writing, producing, doing sound. It was a one-year program. Professionals would come in and teach you how to shoot, how to edit, how to write scripts, how to do sound. I got into the program. I gravitated to the editing, and they taught me how to edit. So by the end of that one-year program, I had edited some of the the films from the workshop. I got a job on a low-budget feature film, mostly all-black crew. But the editor, who was this white Jewish gentleman named Victor Konevsky, took me under his wing. And he introduced me to the world of documentary and documentary storytelling. And the rest is history, man. Wow. Wow. What a great story. And how did you come to work with uh, with Spike Lee? It was 1987. I was working for my first directorial job on Eyes on the Prize. And I was living in Boston. And I was one day I, I had my two sons with me. The one was one was 10, the other was two, my oldest son, Jason. The phone rang, and he picked up the phone. And Spike Lee's film, uh, Do the Right Thing, had just come out in theaters. And my son picked up the phone that day and said, Jason, I said, Dad, Spike Lee's on the phone. And I initially said, Joe, Jason, don't pull my leg. I mean, I just seen the movie in the theater. Spike Lee's calling me. But sure enough, it was Spike Lee. And one of his producers was a friend of mine. And he was getting ready to, his next film was going to be Mo Better Blues with Denzel Washington about jazz musicians. And my friend, this producer, told Spike I was a real jazz aficionado. I love jazz. And that would be a good fit for this film. So he asked if I was interested in editing, and I turned him down the first time. And, you know, I said I was busy trying to finish Eyes on the Prize. I wasn't going to be available. Thank you for calling me. I hung up the phone, man. Two months later, Another filmmaker who was working with Spike recommended me also to cut Mo Better Blues. Spike called me again. We ended up meeting in Martha's Vineyard, Labor Day 1988, I think it was. And I took the film. That's how it began. I'm playing hard to get. <laughs> That's incredible. I didn't think I was playing hard to get. I just was, I was worried about trying to do two films at once. Yeah, no, you you um, had your priorities right. You know, if yeah. you're going to direct something, you got to direct it. That's a full time job. That yeah. that's actually a good segue. I wanted to ask. I mean, having worn both hats, 
as an editor and a director. And I think I've noticed on the films you've directed, you typically don't edit them. That's right. You know, what would you say the similarities and the differences are between the roles and, and how come you, you bring in somebody else to have that, you know, objectivity? Here's the, here's the big difference from editing to directing. When you're editing, you really get into the minutia of every shot, every frame, every bite, every interview, you know. And what you're also doing is you're taking material that someone else's shot, and then you're looking at it through your prism. As a director, I'm the one who has to create the material, shoot the interviews, figure out the material I need to give to the editor to create the film, you know. I used to think when I first directed, it was going to be easy because I used to complain that, oh, these directors don't know what they're doing. But it was very hard to realize that I had to go out now and figure out the questions to ask, where to shoot the interviews, what kind of footage I needed in terms of, you know, accept, you know, uh, complimentary footage. You know, what did the story, what should the story be? I had to be thinking about all those things and then turn that over to an editor. So that was a big difference. And the reason that I don't edit my own stuff is because when you direct your own material, it's really hard to think about it beyond the process of just directing it. By bringing in a good editor, someone who's going to bring a different perspective on it, it's going to inform how you've been thinking about the material and sometimes bring things to it that you didn't think about and elevate it to a level that you didn't think about. There's some of these films that I directed, man. Sometimes all the editors I give the material to, they'll do things better than I thought I might have done it as an editor. So I'm jealous, but the other part of me is happy because they're making my film better. Absolutely. I mean, look, we all wrestle with our with our egos, exactly, uh, and think think we know best. But you always want to have the humility to be able to step aside and recognize best idea wins. Which interesting parallel to Bill Russell, right? Exactly, and and his rivalry with Will. I yeah. mean, because he knew he he could never outpoint you know Will Chamberlain. He could not really completely out rebound Will Chamberlain, but he was able to kind of throw him off his game, you know, so that it enabled his teammates on the Celtics to get the ball, to go down the court, to get the shots. And as you can tell, as you know, statistically, Bill Russell was a winner. Was he physically a better player than Will Chamberlain? No. Will Chamberlain, seven foot two, probably got 30 pounds on six foot nine Bill Russell. Bill Russell had to try to contain him to a degree where he could get the ball under certain rebounds and get it to his teammates. The fact that he was a team player helped to elevate his game. And and Will, as we, as, you know, statistically we know, Will Chamberlain was not a team player. Man. <laughs> he was not a team player. You know, he was a star. But he was going to get his. He was going to get his. Yeah. Bill knew that if Will got 50 points or more, Celtics were going to win the game. That's right. Because – that meant that Wilt was forcing it, forcing the issue. He wasn't finding his teammates. That's right. He wasn't finding his teammates. You know, and that's why he was. That's why he was a player that he was. Now we all know he was. Will Chamberlain was a great player, but was he a great teammate? Not really. <laughs> you know. And then when right. when this Lakers thought, and think of it this way: you have the big three in Los Angeles, nineteen sixty nine: Jerry West, Elgin Baylor, Will Chamberlain. Those guys. As, as Jerry West said in the film, they were a better team than, than the Celtics. You know, statistically, they were a better team. The thing that the Celtics had was this. They physically were, you know, 
they were all the guys who were near the end of their career. You know, Casey, you know, Sam Jones was going to retire. Tommy Hodgson long ago retired. They weren't, they weren't physically a great team that year. But any sport, it's not just about what you do physically. It's how you handle it mentally. Yeah. And, and what Bill Russell's issue with Will Chamberlain was, even though Wilt had been hurt, it's like, you remember when, when, when Willis Reed got hurt against the Knicks, when he played for the Knicks? Yep. And he came out limping, man. Leadership. Yeah. He showed leadership. And so when you show leadership, your teammates rally. If Wilt, so Bill Russell's issue with Wilt was stay in the game, you would have shown leadership to your teammates. Right. And that caused a real rift in their, yeah. in their friendship. Yeah. 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 Because, because he wasn't playing like a teammate. He was playing like an individual. I'm hurt. Right. Even though he wanted to come back. You know, I mean, this other player says he wanted to come back in the game. But Van Vandekoff said, you know, fuck Wilt. <laughs> yeah. No, that was crazy. Um, you know, I, some of the sequences I love most in the series were the way you were able to shine a light on his intellect and his creativity. I never knew his passion for painting and how oh, yeah. you were able to draw those parallels to how it informed how he saw basketball and then the way that he had Casey Jones brought a whole new geometry, math, angles to, to revolutionizing how defense was played in the NBA. Yeah, so it wasn't just about getting the rebound. You know, it was about thinking about when you get the rebound, where to position yourself to get the ball to your teammate, how to move the other player around, you know, on the other team so you have a better position when your teammate can get the shot. You realize how scientific the game sports are. I mean, it's just like, it's just not taking the ball, run down the court, getting the shot, getting the rebound. It's, it's much more than that. And when you understand that, that's what makes these games so exciting. I mean, think about that Super Bowl on Sunday, man. The, the Chiefs are strategic. They're smart. I mean, and, and the Eagles weren't in those slumps. They, you know, they were great. Yeah, team. number one defense. But that second half, you looked at both those touchdowns. Where was the containment? You know, how yeah. does the number one defense let a guy score a touchdown twice where there wasn't a player within ten yards? That's right. You know, and that's Bienemy. That's that's Andy Reid, and that's Mahomes. They yeah. they saw something that that the Eagles didn't realize they were doing. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, it's why Tom Brady's been able to do what he's done for so long. Peyton Manning winning the Super Bowl late in life, and and Bill Russell and that Celtics team, you know, That's winning right. their eleventh when it didn't look like they should. And yet at the same time, and I want to transition here. You know, I imagine if you ask Bill Russell, yeah, those are just games, right? That's not life. Well, that's right. And, and what you brought to the film, showing that that responsibility that he felt he had to do what is right, I think is the really impactful thing. And it's what I'm most interested in in talking about you, because in preparation for this, I did watch MLK. And I mean, wow, what just a powerful story that I hadn't heard. You know, I obviously knew uh, the struggles, but to have that brazen and agenda to say this is the most dangerous Negro in the country, what can we do to take him down? And and, 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 it, and when you think about that, isn't that like amazing? He was a guy who was about nonviolence and peace. And and you're looking at him as the most dangerous Negro in America. It's, <laughs> it's like appalling when you think about it. Right. You know, appalling. It's an uncomfortable truth, right? Yeah, that, yeah, that the people right. who were in charge didn't want things to change. And, and in Boston, right, I'm sure if you asked fans in Boston in the 60s, are you racist? No, we're not racist. Yeah, we just don't want them right. near us. That's exactly right. 
That's exactly right. I mean, the thing that I always find great about doing these documentaries is it gives me the ability to dig deep into a person into the, and in the context in terms of where they lived and what, they, what was happening socially and politically. And when I have an opportunity to do an Arthur Ashe or Bill Russell or Martin Luther King, I'm looking to see if I can make sure that you dig into these people, into the world they lived in at the time, to show how complicated things were. And, and how life is always complicated. It's, you know, it's never black and white life. So, you know, that's one of the challenges I always am looking forward to when I'm trying to do these films. Yeah. Uh, and, and that's, you know, I, I think it, it seems from your work, and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but that there is a, a responsibility uh, of being a filmmaker as well. Just as Russell yeah. felt he had a responsibility off the court, it, it seems that you, you tell me, you know, you're a professor as well. What do you, what do you teach your kids, right? What do you want to send your students out into the world? How do you help them find their voice? Exactly what you just said. It's about the responsibility that you take on as a filmmaker. You're trying to tell stories that are going to ring true. They're going to be as true as possible, but they're going to be complicated. And a long time ago, I worked with a filmmaker named St. Clair Bowen, who said to me very clearly and very bluntly that you have a responsibility, not just to make films to make money, man. You know, if I wanted to make money in those tricks, I could have stayed in feature films, you know, but to make films that you can have an impact that's going to open up a window to another and, you know, another look at American history from another perspective and hopefully engage audiences and force audiences to say, oh, American history is much more than just George Washington and Abraham Lincoln and Franklin Delano Roosevelt. You know, it's people like August Wilson. It's like Sammy Davis Jr. It's like Martin Luther King. It's like Bill Russell. So that is a responsibility I took on seriously at the age of 32, 33. And I try to still live up to that with all the films that I'm attached to or I try to develop. That's impressive. That, and that's great, right? That's, 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 that's your legacy. I hope so. And I pass it on to one of my, my son, who's also in the business. Oh, he is. What does he do? He's an editor and a director. Did you insist that he started as an editor first? <laughs> no. <laughs> I think he just saw me do it, and he decided, decided to want to emulate me, which, you know, I got to say, I'm very proud of him. He just finished a documentary about Louis Armstrong. It was on Apple+. Plus. You know. Oh, all right. Yeah, yeah I, I heard of that. I have not seen it yet. Yeah, I will, yeah. I will check it out. Well, what's uh, what's up next for you? What are you working on, if you can talk about it? Yeah, I have a documentary that's going to be premiering at South by Southwest in next month. It's about the jazz musician, drummer from the period of bebop to the present named Max Roach, who was a drummer who played with Charlie Parker and Dizzy Gillespie and Thelonious Monk and Clifford Brown and... Uh, it's a film that took me almost 30 years to get finished, but I finally finished it with a co-director, and I'm very proud of it. And then I have a film coming out in the summer about the Negro Baseball Leagues, Josh Gibson, Satchel Paige, you know, which will be a theatrical feature film about the Negro Leagues and how it, it built and grew, and then it lost its momentum when Jackie Robinson integrated the major leagues. I look forward to that. I'm sure that will be fascinating. Yeah. Um, are there any other uh, holy grail projects, projects you've pitched in the past that you wish had, had gone or, or things, you know, you said you worked on this Max Roach for 30 years. I mean, that is that's quite the, the white whale <laughs> journey there. It was a white whale, man. Um, you know, I'm always trying to develop some other stuff. I'm trying to develop a documentary about this African-American man who went to the Congo 
named George Washington Williams. I'm trying to develop a documentary about this record company from the 60s called Impulse Records that was really sort of built around John Coltrane's musical legacy. You know, I'm always trying to find projects that uh, are going to stimulate me and force me to investigate history, American history from a different lens. I love that. And that's, that's extremely important, right? Is, Absolutely. A quick example. I, I grew up, as I mentioned, in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma. I had first heard of the Tulsa race riots. And I have to phrase that that way because that's how it was. I won't even say taught, but how I first heard about it. Yeah. You know, almost in these like Trumpian terms of like, well, you know, there's good folks on both sides. That's right. And I remember my wife and I were watching The Watchmen, the, the scripted HBO uh-huh. series. HBO, yeah. And the pilot had, yep. you know, giant special effects planes overhead dropping bombs on Greenwood, the part of town in Tulsa, and everything was blowing up and it was destroyed and explosions. And I had to say, I, I kind of rolled my eyes a little bit. And I said, wow, they're really, you know, going Hollywood on this. Yeah. And as we're watching the rest of the pilot, I, I you know, bring up my phone as, as we consume things these days. And uh, I'm going down the rabbit hole and, um, you know, I'm learning about the Greenwood race riots. And this was before the 100th anniversary a couple of years ago. And I'll be damned. You know, it, it was Black Wall Street. It was a thriving business community. And in one day it was completely destroyed. Exactly. And right. that's the town I grew up in. Right. Yeah. That's a part of town that was two and a half miles from where I grew up. And I never knew that until I was 40 years old. Well, now you know. Uh, and now, fortunately, that story has been told. And, you know, with the 100 year anniversary, a lot's happened. But there's a lot of stories like that out there. Well, think about this. Tra- 1991, I did a documentary for the American Experience called Going Back to T-Town about the Tulsa race riot. 1991. <laughs> and the other thing is, one of the seminal R&B bands from that period, the musicians, it was called the Gap Band. And the Gap Band was three guys from Tulsa. They were they lived in the Gap Band was Greenwood, Archer, and Pine. Three streets in Tulsa, Oklahoma, man. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's a crazy world, right? And we have to we have to wrestle with it. We have to oh, yeah. to reconcile these these pat parts of our history. That's right. That we're not proud of, but unless you you face them head on, you know, you're, you're doomed to repeat yourself. Exactly. Uh, last couple questions. Sure. Dream dinner party. Invite anybody past, present, alive, not living. Who would it be? It would be Ali. It would be James Baldwin. And it would be Zora Neale Hurston. I would love to eavesdrop on that conversation. Yeah. Well, Sam, thank you very much. Are there any uh, last words, um, anything I forgot to ask, anything you send your, your students away with, parting words of wisdom? I always tell them that, you know, the film business is not an easy business. It's tough. It's a business, you know, and don't expect to get rich. I mean, it's rare that you get rich making documentaries. But if you, you know, if you got passionate and committed, you will have a lot of fun. You know, there'll be great ups and sometimes there'll be some downs, but usually the ups are more than the downs. And I've been doing it 50, this is my 50th year in the business. And I love it as much as I did 50 years ago. Well, cheers, cheers to that. Congratulations, sir. I hope there are many, many more films to come. Uh, any any uh, websites, obviously, everybody check out 
Bill Russell legend on Netflix. Anything uh, we should direct them to? Films, websites, social media handles. Peacock has another documentary that I just co-directed called Lowndes County and the Road to Black Power is playing on Peacock right now. So tell all your friends. On October on American Masters, the Max Roach documentary will be on. On American Masters. I look forward to both of those. Sam, thank you very much for your time today. Genuinely appreciate it. Take care of yourself. Be good. Take care. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.